and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged each week to sit here in this chair and interview some of the world's most renowned thought leaders, whether they are drawn from private sector, nonprofits, some ecclesiastical leaders. We often interview best-selling authors and business titans, Hollywood celebrities, fitness, wellness, brain experts, sometimes people that have suffered and recovered from some kind of unspeakable trauma or accident and lived to tell about what they've learned, how they moved through trauma into growth. We also interview people that aren't household names, people that perhaps have dedicated their entire professional lives to researching a topic that can bring those insights to you and make you a better leader. This is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. Now, we all define leadership a little bit different. For some of you, you want to move up into the C-suite and be a better leader of your organization and your team. For others of you, perhaps you're a first-time, first-level leader, and you're just kind of figuring out how to transition from an independent contributor into a leadership role. Those are very different, right? For some of you, you might just wanting to be better leaders in your religious community, in your school community, in your municipal town or just be a better leader to your spouse or partner or kids. We try to be all things to all people trying to be better leaders. My name is Scott Miller. I'm also the author of the new series called Master Mentors, brought to you by HarperCollins Leadership, where each year I produce a volume very similar to Chicken Soup for the Leadership Soul, volume one and volume two, one a year, where I have the privilege of, with the permission of our guests, picking 30 people that have been on the podcast and teasing out one transformative insight from them. Oftentimes, things they said on the air or even off the air. The books are fast, easy, and breezy. 30 people had to be a guest on the podcast. 30 insights, one from each person. The books are available in print, audio, digital, and now video books from Lit Video. Uh, Volume 3 and Master Mentors is completed, coming out in the fall of 2023, on my way to 10 volumes in 10 years in the series. Who knows, maybe today's guest might want to be featured in a future volume. In fact, today's guest is a leadership expert. And before I introduce him, I'll tell you, I often get asked the question, Scott, why do you use Franklin Covey's Spotlight and Platform to interview competitors? Well, if you know our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who of course wrote the incomparable book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has sold 50 plus million copies. It is the basis of our leadership curriculum here at Franklin Covey. And he had what you would call it was an abundance mentality, the opposite of a scarcity mentality. And although Dr. Covey passed 10 years ago, he had a profound influence on my upbringing in the firm. And I try, with the endorsement of our CEO and board, to make this podcast just that, an abundance of resources to help you become better leaders. We are experts on several things, how to build a high-trust culture, how to build great leaders, how to build your productivity, how to execute strategy, how to manage change. And we also like to interview people like Marcus Buckingham and Ken Blanchard and others that are in the industry that Patrick Lencioni, because we don't think we're experts on everything. We just want you to be a better leader, which is why Tim Arnold is our guest today. He's a prolific speaker, author, coach. His recent book is called Lead With And, The Secret to Resilience and Results in a polarized world. Joining us from just north of the U.S. border in Canada, Tim Arnold, welcome to On Leadership. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here, Scott. I appreciate your time. World's longest introduction, but I really want our listeners and viewers to know that each week we intentionally curate 
new guests. Some of them are household names and celebrities. And some of them are people like you that have a rising influence in the space but may not be known by all of our clients because you do have a very intriguing and interesting point of view on the tensions that leaders and individual contributors face on a day-to-day basis. Your book I mentioned is Lead With And. It is not your first book, but you have dedicated much of your expertise and years to understanding the tensions that we all face. Tim, can you take a few minutes and reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey? And then we're gonna dive into very practical steps and tensions that leaders face. Absolutely. So. I mean, it was interesting because I got into this area of tensions and managing tensions well, uh, I think because it wasn't something that came natural to me and yet was life-changing for me. Uh, I would have been raised in a very conservative religious upbringing uh, where things were right and wrong, good or bad, very black or white. Uh, I studied to be an accountant, uh, so I was pretty skilled at getting the right answer and eliminating the wrong answers. But what was interesting was probably in my early 20s, I started to feel stuck on a lot of levels, uh, professionally and personally. And, you know, I, I, I recognized and thankfully I had some good friends and mentors in my life. Um, I was treating everything in life as if it was a problem to solve mm. everything as if it was right or wrong, good or bad. Just pick the right answer and move forward. And certainly, Scott, let me be super clear. Lots of challenges that we face in life are problems to solve. And yet, there's a lot of situations that are more complex than that. There are challenges that we have to address. We often have to make decisions, but it's not situations that are right and wrong. It's situations that are right and right. And, and, and it was a, a space, a, a way of thinking, a way of leading that I just wasn't developed in. So I became a student of that space. And I certainly am not the first person to write on this. Um, actually, Dr. Covey wrote a lot about managing complexities. Uh, we have... The genius of the and for Jim Collins. I mean, Lao Tzu was onto something when he talked about yin yang. There's a lot of challenges in life that aren't black or white, but instead force us to ref- wrestle with complexity, with tension. And as I started to learn about this and, and actually get more skilled at recognizing and managing tensions well, I started to realize that a lot of areas of my life started to get unstuck. And I started to move forward in a lot of ways. And experience health, not only personally, but in my leadership role. So my work has really been focused on helping leaders uh, start to identify and then manage key tensions, not problems to solve, because they probably can do that without me, but a few tensions that are make it or break it to their overall success and to their overall resilience. Tim, uh, today's conversation is going to congeal around this idea of tension your previous book was titled The Power of Healthy Tension. Let's come at it from that first point of view. What's the difference between healthy tension and unhealthy tension? It's a great question. You know, it's interesting, Scott. I've worked with audiences all over the world. And even though my first book was called The Power of Healthy Tension, you know, usually it's on the backdrop of a big screen. I'll say to the audience, and I've done this through translators, so this kind of spans the globe. I say tension, you think what? And Scott, what do you think the answer I hear is most commonly? What do you think? Anxiety, frustration, broken relationships, unsettledness. Exactly. Stress. Sometimes it's even physical. Shoulder pain. People assume tension is bad. And as a result, generally would do one of two things. We avoid it or we ignore it. It's there, but we just pretend it's not. And, and certainly there are types of tensions that are unhealthy. 
There are other tensions, though, that are unavoidable, first of all, and they can be the very thing that allows us to walk our talk, that allows us not just to have mission, vision, values on the wall of our buildings, but to live them out. If we, instead of ignoring them or avoiding them, lean into them and realize that, wow, this is a tension that is going to really allow us to be what we're capable of being. So first of all, recognizing that some tensions are good. And, and I mean, think about our lives. I mean, right now, today, you're going to breathe 20,000 times a day. Well, you can't just say, you know what, I think, I think it's an inhale day today. No, you, you, you have to recognize that inhaling and exhaling are a package deal. You know, outside of work, I've got two, you know, preteens and I recognized early that if I decide to parent in a structured or if I decide to parent in a flexible way, it doesn't work very well. But if I can learn to kind of parent in a way that's both structured and flexible, gosh, that actually starts to, to deliver. You know, and certainly the more leadership we take on, the less we're dealing with just simple problems to solve, where you just pick the answer and move on. Now we're in roles that force us to wrestle with complexity, to wrestle with situations, again, that aren't right and wrong, but are right and right. We still have to make decisions. We still have to set direction, but we have to do it in a way that, first of all, embraces and even invites people into the complexity that we're feeling every day. Tim, when I decide to feature someone on the On Leadership podcast with the counsel of our production team, I'm very cognizant not to make this a book review, right? I mean, I don't want this podcast to just be a trove of people trying to peddle their books on to this uh, platform. Most thought leaders have a book, and so we tend to use the book as a central piece. Not always. Some guests don't have books. However, this book has some, some great practical information for everyone who's listening and watching, especially those who are in a leadership position. The, a central tenet of your book are what you call these six leadership tensions, and I'd like to spend the bulk of our coming conversation talking about each of them. Very quickly, I want to do a rundown. So for those who are watching and listening, check in for a moment because we're going to spend about three or four minutes on each of these six tensions. I found them to be not just super practical, but very relevant and prevalent in my life as a parent of three young boys and as a husband who loves tension. By the way, when you say tension, I think resolution. When you say tension, I think progress. When you say tension, I think argument. I love arguing. And increasingly, as I mature, I don't always have to be right. My wife would have evidence to the otherwise, but that's not her podcast. Leadership tension number one, being optimistic and realistic. You're going to see a theme here with the word and. Leadership tension number two, embracing change and preserving stability. Tension number three, being profit-focused and purpose-driven, something every millennial Gen Xer is looking for when they look at employers now. Tension number four, having expectations and extending grace. Tension five, caring for others and caring for yourself. And then finally, tension number six, building confidence and remaining humble. Now, your book, Lead With And, has more content than just these six tensions, but I actually think they're super practical, so let's get going. I want you just to take this wherever you'd like to go, including telling any stories you think are relevant. Leadership tension number one, being optimistic and realistic. Yeah, and I certainly am not the first person to talk about this, Scott. Actually, 
Uh, if you really want to do a deeper dive into this tension, you can dig into some of Jim Collins' work around the Stockdale paradox and this concept of leaders who aren't just good, they're great, are optimistic. They hold on to um, the long-term view of we're going to get there, we're going to get through this, this will serve us well. And often they're the leaders that help people face the facts of reality to say, hey, this is real and we got to get our head around this. Actually, Dr. Covey spent a lot of time on this when he talked about circles of concern. Absolutely be aware of things you can't control because you don't want to fixate on them. However, they matter. You need to be aware of them. Put your energy, though, and this is where the optimism comes in, on that inner circle, things that you can actually influence or control. And if you can do both, you know, see it on a piece of paper, be a leader that is optimistic, helps people focus on the things that we can move forward with, but at the same time is realistic, saying, hey, we got to get our head around these challenges. That's the leadership that actually stands out from the pack. And again, I'm one of many that have shown through evidence that that leadership really is great kind of level five leadership. Tim, I've spent my entire 30-year career in the leadership development industry, working for Disney and now working for Franklin Covey for 27 years. And 25 of them have been leading people, first level, frontline, mid, senior, C-suite for a decade. There's three types of people, right? There's the pessimist, there's the optimist, and there's the realist. Of course, there's more than that, but let's just go with that for a moment. No one ever has said, I'm a pessimist. No one ever self-identifies as a pessimist. You quickly identify in your team members, which do you think are optimist? The person who just thinks it'll all work out and they live a lovely life of naivete and lack of um, working it out. By the way, I think stuff works out because you work it out, but that's my own personal point of view. No one ever self-identifies as being a pessimist but I find that a lot of people do, when they're accused of either being a realist or a pessimist, they'll usually say, no, no, no. Or you, when you accuse them of being an optimist or a pessimist, they'll often say, no, no, I'm just a realist. Now, I think we all have some of those three characteristics in us, depending upon the situation and the challenge and our experience. What's the difference between, or let me ask the question differently. How do you find that sweet spot between realism and optimism? Because I've worked for leaders that are optimistic and I realize that's lovely and contagious and motivating, but you are clueless about what it's gonna to take to get this project done. And I just need you to validate that all isn't gonna work out. It's gonna work out because we're gonna work our asses off for seven weeks, boss, to work it out. And I just need you to recognize that because your optimism, although is lovely, quite frankly, it's a little bit abandoning. Hmm. I just need you to validate that, that this is tough. It is tough. And it's, it's interesting that you look at optimism and realism, because as you say, no one is ever going to self-identify as a pessimist or being naive. And yet, when it comes to no, I mean, both optimism, realism, or any of the six tensions, on paper, they make sense. But in the wild, outside of reading the book or in the training room, we have biases. We just have a preference. And the goal is not to kind of water down your bias and just kind of live in this mediocre mid space. It's to actually be who you are, but to learn to be the best version of who you are. So for example, Scott, in optimism and realism, I have a bias towards optimism, absolutely. But what's interesting about tensions, and this is true of any tension of the six, if you over-focus on one and you neglect the other, 
you get the downside of the very kind of preference you have. So if I live in optimism space all the time, guaranteed, I'm going to be naive. <clears throat> and people are going to just kind of say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I know what really happens out there. Similarly, folks who have a natural tendency towards realism, that's that's a gift. But if I if I don't, if I just kind of live in my comfort zone all the time, and I don't kind of have checks and balances that you know, allow me to push myself on optimism, that becomes pessimism. So the very best thing you can do, first of all, is be aware of it. But also, and this is for leaders so important, if you know where your bent or your bias is, you need an opposite. You need somebody who you know will call you on it to say, hey, help me with this. Or hey, how would you approach this? Or you know what, I got to do a, a company address next week. I know that my my bent is kind of towards optimism. Is it coming across okay? And if you can have someone push you on the other side, it actually helps you kind of not be someone you're not, but be a better version of who you are. Tim, really beautifully said. I want to belabor this for a minute more. We'll go to the second tension. I would consider myself to be a combination of realism and optimism. But I also would say I think I have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. You know, everybody always says about Scott, the ideas get bigger and bigger and bigger the closer the project is due. Uh, I, don't have a, I, I, I don't have a contained mindset. I work with a producer who's in the room right now. Uh, I don't think he's a pessimist. I think he's a realist. I would not call him an optimist, but I also would say he has more of a fixed mindset because he's, he's pragmatic. Like his number one reputation, he's a pragmatist. He doesn't want to work 90 hours a week. He's not trying to earn a billion dollars a year. He has a balanced life, and he wants, to, he wants to contribute A, quality work across four things, not B, quality work around 60 things. I tend to be a little bit more of a water skier. He's more of a scuba diver. And so we have tension. It's healthy tension because we talk about this. I'm more of an optimist growth mindset. He's more of a realist, more fixed mindset. Those aren't complete descriptions of our talents. But I'm always wanting to do bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to slow down. Any advice you would give to relationships, marital or otherwise, where you've got this person like me who wants to do bigger and more and more, and this other person who's equally as competent, like slow down, slow down, slow down. I find him limiting, and he probably finds me a little bit irresponsible. Yeah, I think it's a great example. So first of all, I would say the fact that you're aware of the, the you know, our biases are different when it comes to this tension and not ignore it, but lean into it to say, you know what, yeah. that's a person. Because what happens, Scott, is we have as human beings, this confirmation bias, which generally means once I have a bias or a point of view, I seek out affirmation. So it'd be really easy for you to seek out other growth mindset folks and other optimism focus. And we feel great about it because we're just patting each other on the back, but I don't need to. I, I already see that picture. What I need to do is actually say, you know what, my producer, that's the push I need right now. And before I say yes to this, or before maybe I send this email that I know that could have ripple effect, I should get his or her take on that. So that, that's embracing tension. Well, don't get crazy now. Don't over-empower this person. Come on, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, I think the big takeaway there is the more we can talk about it, the more we can talk about this tension we have, the less it is negative tension and the more it is positive tension. Yeah, I would add one thing to that, Scott, and that is it's remembering that I don't need to exchange my view, but I can expand my view. So in a very polarized culture that we live in, there's a 
I think, a misconception that if someone sees something different, then my only option is to give away my values and everything I believe in and exchange my view for theirs. In reality, often we can hold on to our values and beliefs, but expand them to say, wow, that's a perspective I didn't see. And together, I'm going to make a better decision now. I'm going to do a better job of this presentation, whatever it may be. Tension number two, embracing change and preserving stability. I mean, this is arguably the biggest issue every CEO faces when they are trying to move forward with a disrupting strategy, right, to dominate their market or move up their market share. And they're faced with this idea of, quote, burning the ships, right? The idea of we're not going back. But a lot of companies have these core business models that they can't afford to just dump overnight. They've got to figure out, so to speak, kind of how to change the plane engine while the plane is 30,000 feet with 800 passengers. Talk about the balance between embracing change and preserving stability. Yeah, what's interesting is often leaders' job is to be agents of change, to model, to, to make change safe, to help people move forward. I mean, that's part of leadership. And as you know, because I've actually heard you talk about this with lots of other guests, you know, the research isn't very encouraging when it comes to the amount of change initiatives that don't achieve all of the core objectives. Like we're not great at implementing change, even though the change looks good on paper. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. But I think one of the things that we mistakenly do is we don't understand or communicate change as attention to manage to say, hey, here's where we're going for these reasons. And here's what we're going to hold on to as we go there. Because if I'm a stability oriented person and you're just painting a picture of how this change is beautiful, everything in me is like, I don't want to lose this. But if you can say, hey, we feel here's an amazing opportunity and here's what we're going to hold on to as we move forward, I'm listening now. The other thing that's helpful is if we recognize change and stability as a package deal, I know that if I over-focus on change and I neglect stability, what I will live out is chaos and confusion and we'll lose what we're known for. So sometimes it's good to say that, to say, hey, in this season of change, we are going to achieve X, Y, and Z. And we also know that if we lose sight of these things, this won't work well for our culture. So here's what we're going to do to overcome that. And we need all of us to make that happen. That's a very different communication strategy or change management strategy than painting the current reality is broken and the change is going to fix everything. So seeing change and stability as a package deal makes all the difference. Tim, one of your superpowers is your, uh, your great communication skills. I could see myself sitting in an audience enjoying you as a keynote speaker. I want to pay you a compliment on that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, tension three, being profit-focused and purpose-driven, I think probably one of the most important criterias that the younger, well-educated generation sweeping into the workforce is fiercely focused on is Several years ago, I was giving a keynote speech in Beijing for a CEO that was the CEO of a multi-billion dollar division of a larger global company. This person was an engineer, indisputably competent in their field, and they were doing a pre-consult with me in the morning at breakfast prior to my five-hour leadership keynote to their 50 top leaders. And this person, when I kept asking the priorities, they were reminding me that all that mattered, quote, was the stock price. It's all that mattered. And this was a very competent person. This person would eat my lunch on most 
operational topics, Six Sigma, Lean, AI, you name it. And I remember sitting there over breakfast realizing she wasn't open to my feedback, but thinking, you know, the 900 new employees you onboarded from the top colleges across the US, they don't give a flying flip about your stock price. They could care less about your, your stock options. They don't care. And the moment they realize that's all you care about, I'm guessing this person cared about more, but all she talked about was the stock price. I remember thinking, yeah, you're missing. You're missing why people come and you're really missing why people stay or why they leave. Talk about the tension between being profit-focused and purpose-driven. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I feel like this is a tension uh, that is mismanaged uh, possibly more than, than the others in that we often feel like, okay, well, for-profit companies are just that. It's just for profit. And then there's not-for-profits and charities, and that's purpose. And, you know, I think that we've made and gained some ground. I mean, when we look at um, Simon Sinek's work around starting with why and recognizing, you know, the, the, the why before the how and the what, that's helped, I think, a lot of Daniel Pink's work around what really starts to engage people has helped. But still, when I work with organizations every week, for-profit organizations, it's pretty consistent with your Beijing example. It's very much, you know, here's the, the bottom line we're going for. How do we arrange leadership development and teams to make sure we get there? And then you get in the room with the teams. And again, they're concerned about how do I bring my best? How do I know that what I'm doing is making a difference? I sat down with a senior leader yesterday. And I mean, this person on every level is successful. And I'm sure most people would love to be in his seat. And he was sitting with me in a coaching session saying, I'd kind of be willing to just give it up right now because I don't feel like I'm really making a difference. And, you know, I, I think that the, in the for-profit space, we have to look at, again, not trade-offs. This isn't Scott meeting 50-50. Well, we're going to be less profit-focused and more purpose-driven. If we're super profit-focused, how do we hold on to that? But, but start to say, what would it look like to really integrate more purpose? Not only in what we do, our mission, our vision, but in individual jobs and helping people tap into their sweet spot and be more strengths-based. How do we do that? You know, and similarly, I work with a lot of, you know, uh, international not-for-profits that often their foreground is, is purpose. You know, it's impact. And yet, the bottom line matters. I actually, years and years and years ago, spent a decade running a homeless shelter. And it was the first time that I'd worked in the not-for-profit space. And, you know, everyone talked purpose and all that we're going to do and the amazing work we're doing in the community. But I was getting frustrated because every season I'd look at our numbers and saying, we can't do a fraction of what we want to do. We got to look at this organization differently. We need to focus more on the bottom line so we can actually have more impact, focus more on purpose. So wherever you're at, you know, the question is, do we have a healthy focus on both? And it's not about trading off and switching or pendulum swinging. But if it feels off, what would it take to step up the other side? Because everybody wins when we manage this tension well. Everybody. Tim, again, beautifully said, Dr. Covey was fond of saying, no margin, no mission. And for many years, the Covey Leadership Center had this massive impact, but it was struggling financially. Sometimes to the point of even you know, precariousness 30 plus years ago. Uh, it's an important reminder for every leader listening because post-pandemic, I don't know of a person whose values have not shifted. It doesn't mean that their professional values still may not be maximizing their income, 
But I think everyone, including me, is focused on, is the work I'm doing matter? Is it meaningful? If, if I'm in the chemicals business, how do I connect to that beyond the shares of your stock that are in my 401k? Every leader needs a massive wake-up call, not just for the 20 and 30-year-olds, but also for the Scott Millers that want to know, hey, I've lived 70% of my life. If I'm going to stay here for six more years, I want to make sure what I'm doing matters, not just Absolutely. to my IRA and my 401k, but to my purpose in life. I think it's a, it's a monumental imperative that leaders at all levels need to be reminded of. I, I have a friend that works for a Fortune 5 company. This Fortune 5 company, I believe your compensation is more than 50% in stock. And the upside this person had by staying was, you know, kind of mind-blowing mind in their 30s. And they left, they left, this person has four children, the sole income earner for their company, for their, for their family. The wife is a full-time stay-at-home house leader. And they left to go to a more mission-driven company because, like everybody else, they realized, you know, my days are numbered and I want my days to count. So mm -hmm. every leader be thinking about the balance between profit and purpose. Leadership tension. I'll just add one thing to that, Scott, because I, I would resonate so strongly with, with that. I see and hear that constantly. And I think it's also important to recognize for the Fortune 5s and the Fortune 105, you don't need to be building houses for underprivileged communities to have a purpose-driven organization. And, you know, I work with lots of organizations that manufacture widgets that are, you know, not doing things that maybe would seem like they would be purpose-driven, but I've seen how their employees, when they recognize the impact of their work and they actually have jobs that allow them to bring their best, those organizations can be just as purpose-driven as people building houses for the homeless. So it can happen in every type of organization. You're exactly right. This friend of mine left a gargantuan online retailer and went to work for an online benefits company. They weren't building life-saving, you know, water purification processes for people that don't have access to water. It was, you know, a differently mission-driven organization. Tension number four, having expectations and extending grace. Let's do a bit of a power round here. I'm mindful of our time that's left. Talk about tension four, having expectations while extending grace. Yeah, and, and Scott, this is one right now, you know, coming out of the pandemic that I feel I'm in conversations about every day because as leaders, we wanna have high expectations. First and foremost on ourselves, on the folks that we're leading and we need high levels of grace. And when I say grace, Scott, I'm talking about acceptance, understanding, empathy. And I, I would think that if we had time and you thought about some of the best leaders who've ever impacted you, I bet they had high levels of both. Can you stop had, there a they second? They pushed you hard. Can you Sorry, stop a second? Please. So yes. for, um, while I just said where this is the speed round, I stop you to interject my story. <laughs> it's, it's the reason why I chose to focus today's interview on these six, because they're so relevant. I was the chief marketing officer for a decade at Franklin Covey, reporting to the, to the CEO, now our chairman of the board. And one time I made a colossal mistake. I, I, I created a whole program and process without Googling, did somebody else own the trademark to that name? Like, I didn't know Google existed, apparently, as the CMO of a global public company. We got a cease and desist order from that person's attorney saying, shut it down, shut it down. I walk into the CEO immediately because, to quote you as well, bad news never solves itself or gets better. 
And I walked in to confess my, my, my plan. Like, here's the letter from the attorney. I'm a public officer in your company, and I didn't realize that Google existed to make sure that this product I developed didn't have a copyright on it, which it does. And here's the money they're demanding in exchange for letting us go forward. I sat down to the insanely competent CEO of Franklin Covey. I wasn't fearing my job, but I was fearing my brand diminishing. He closed the door and said, let me share my biggest doozy. And he went on to talk about a, a, a mistake he'd made in his career where he'd done a similar thing. A company he owned had actually taken out billboards across the town and they had to take them down because of a similar problem. This did not absolve me of responsibility, the resolution, but immediately it was a learning moment. And had he like flogged me, it would have gone one way, but he just validated my, my human fallibility. And I, I can tell you, Google became my best friend metaphorically from that day forward, right? Uh, it's a great, it's, you just illustrated the expectations, Grace, brilliantly. And I mean, it's worth noting you're still in the chair you're in because you've been in an environment that does this well. And what's fascinating about, you know, we're living in a space right now where we're starting to recognize the need for psychological safety and empathy. All that doesn't exist if we don't have an environment that incorporates grace. And yet, if we do that well, we can actually step up the expectations. You know, we can get to a place where you're saying, hey, we don't and, you know, I, I think you've had lots of uh, conversations um, around psychological safety. We want this to be a place where we can show up. We don't have to be perfect. We're going to fail forward, all of that. And we're going to go hard. We're going to actually push ourselves really hard. And as we not perfectly, but consistently excel, we're going to keep pushing each other harder. And, you know, I, like you, Scott, get the privilege of working with just so many different organizations, the ones that just I'm so inspired by. They do this well. They have probably expectations that would scare some people, but their level of grace is so on par with that that it works. And that's a culture you don't want to leave. Tim, this is swiftly becoming one of my favorite interviews because of the practicality of our conversation. People ask me frequently, Scott, 27 years at Franklin Covey, dude, you couldn't get a job anywhere else? I'm a dinosaur when it comes to longevity, right? I mean, at the outset, the average tenure is three years. The mean, the mean, if you will, is more like 18 months. And I always say the same thing. I had lots of options. I could have made more money. I kind of wish I had made more money now So I look back on in my 50s. But the fact of the matter is I retired from the firm about two and a half years ago, stepped aside. I'm now a contractor and an ambassador for the company as a host of this podcast. But I look back and say, I'm still hanging around. Hopefully it's more than that because of how I've been treated, because of the grace that my leader gave me time and time again, all the times he probably chose not to call me out because he was picking his battles. He realized that this, this is how I'm going to manage Scott. Here's how I'm going to lead Scott. And I'm here to this day because of really how I've been treated by the chairman of the board and by the CEO. Lots of high courage conversations. I've been, been on the end of many, you know, Scott, do this again and, to quote you, not so good and, but this is why I am here dedicating, you know, 30 hours a week still to Franklin Covey, not only because I'm passionate about their mission or they paid me well, but of their investment in me and quite frankly, the grace they've shown me. It works. It's a winning. I mean, if you want to attract and retain great people, 
managing expectations and grace is where it's at. I mean, that is a make it or break it tension for a culture that keeps high performers. And it's not all about giving people eighth chances. I mean, you, you very clearly say, no, no, first, having expectations. Because when I sign up for a revenue goal to the CEO, that by the end of this quarter, our team will deliver this, that's like an unbroken bond, right? He may mm -hmm. give me grace on something else, but when I say I'm gonna deliver, you know, three million of EBITDA this quarter, the conversation is done. There's no renegotiation. I've made a commitment, and if I wanna stay working here, I have to meet that commitment. I love that you address this as number four. And that's, that's where expectations and grace is a package deal. Because if all of a sudden, you know, we read work on psychological safety and empathy in the workplace, and it's all that all the time, but we don't hold on to expectations, we have a culture of mediocrity. And, and ironically, that's not a culture where high performers want to stay. So true. So, so true. expectations and grace work well only when they work together. You're exactly right because your high performers will leave if they believe they're in a mediocre environment with mediocre performers. Absolutely. Let's move on. We have about two minutes each for the left, the, 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 the remaining two, because I've talked so much. Uh, hey, at least I'm self-aware. Leadership tension number five, caring for others and caring for yourself. This one seems kind of self-evident. What insight would you bring to number five, caring for others and caring for yourself? I, I, would, I would just say it is self-evident. We all know that if I don't care, take care of myself, no one is going to get taken care of well. What's interesting, though, for leaders is that leaders is an others-oriented job. And the more that we lead, the more we're focused on our teams, our shareholders, the community, never mind everyone who I'm caring for outside of work. So the question becomes, how do I care for myself? And, you know, I actually would say one of the best ways to get your head around that would go back to Dr. Covey's quadrants of time and just say, I know that if I don't find time to schedule kind of things that aren't urgent, but they're important, I'm in trouble. So I've got to be better at scheduling things that are two things, Scott, meaningful and manageable for me. To, to invest in myself. Meaningful in that I'm not going to buy into the less, you know, marketing and social media ads of what I need for self-care. I want to find out what do I need. For me, Scott, I every week, 20 minutes a week, I'm on the water fishing. Even if it's going down the road for just literally 20 minutes. Fishing. But I know fishing. That, that is exactly what I need to kind of fill up my bucket. Fishing? Fishing. I need champagne and bread and cheese and in that order. Well, that that would be meaningful for you. So if you can find that, Scott, the next piece is just make it manageable. Find ways that you can do simple things consistently so that you will, over time, it's not 50-50. And in leadership, self-others is usually incredibly weighted on others. But you do need to make sure that the self-piece is both meaningful and manageable. And you got to schedule it. Did you say fishing? I did. No. And you know what? I'm very excited, Scott, because... The ice has just left the lake here in Southern Ontario. So that doesn't mean ice fishing anymore, which I'm, I'm ready for. There's a thing called ice fishing? I'm kidding. <laughs> you know I'm what? I'm kidding. I'm very, I'm very aware of the people who could be sitting in their back porch with their fireplace on, drinking champagne, eating a lovely loaf of French bread and a great aged Gouda, but instead they're out Drilling holes in the... Okay, let's move on. Okay. That can be uh, a both and as well, but we, we don't have time to go <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, so. I don't know. I don't know about... I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I wish you well with that. 
thawed ice. Okay, let's talk about the fishermen now all hate me. I've just been dropped all across the lake communities of America. <laughs> um, the leadership tension, building confidence and remaining humble. Now, this one could actually be confusing. Building confidence and remaining humble. Are you building confidence in yourself? Are you building other people's confidence in your skills? Talk about how you want yeah. this one to be interpreted. You know what? I think the best way to look at confidence and humility is, is to kind of look at two schools of thought. On one side, you know, you go down the, the road of the Gallup's research and Marcus Buckingham and being strengths-based and recognizing, you know what? There are things that I can do better than 10,000 other people. And I'm not going to be shy about that. I'm actually going to capitalize on that. Leadership is helping people move forward. So the more that I can be confident as a guide for others, the more everybody wins. And I think confidence is something that we constantly need to grow in, that strengths-based confidence. At the same time, you mentioned Carol Dweck and growth mindset. Growth mindset says, I'm always learning something new and there's always something I don't know. And I wanna put myself in situations where I'm gonna make mistakes sometimes and I'm gonna be really curious, not to prove myself wrong, but to prove myself incomplete, to say, wow, I never thought of it that way. So as a leader, what happens often is leadership's trajectories stall because they don't, they just won't allow themselves to grow in the confidence or they get a leadership title and now they pendulum swing to confidence, but they lose the humility. And if you've worked with a, a leader like that, you don't want to work for them very long. But leaders who can consistently say, I would feel like I have high levels of confidence and I have equally high levels of humility. That's a leader that you want to work with, you want to work for, and you want to model that leadership approach. Tim Arnold, with the exception of your favorite pastime, man, you are the real deal. Thank you for joining us today. Your book is Lead With And, The Secret to Resilience and Results in a Polarized World. Uh, like I said, I think the best compliment I could pay you is how much I enjoyed your book, but I could envision sitting in one of your keynotes at a town hall or conference and really taking away thoughtful insight around these six tensions. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate meeting you. Thank you. It's been a, a pleasure. I really appreciate the conversation. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.